Hello, this is Gary Wells, and you are listening to The American Farewell. Episode 2, Life, Liberty, and Roe v. Wade. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of May, 2022. We had been ready to launch an entirely different podcast this week on the subject of taxes, but a recent news story has preempted that, and today we will be talking about one of the issues that has caused a huge divide of America for the past 50 years, abortion. Unless you've been sequestered from all media for the past 48 hours, you have heard that a Supreme Court draft of a ruling tied to abortion was recently leaked. According to this draft, the Supreme Court is intending to review the established precedent of Roe v. Wade and, in all likelihood, overturn it. The fact that a Supreme Court draft of a ruling was leaked in the first place is a whole other problem that we will get to in a future podcast, perhaps. Please note, we will attempt to review this matter as fully as can be done without making the case just for one side or the other. But if you are likely to become exceptionally disturbed if the points made here are not fully on your side, today's podcast may not be the one that you want to listen to. The American Farewell podcasts are intended to make you think, not to make you angry or disgusted. That's what cable news is for. Let's get on with it. The delicate matter of abortion was one that was not publicly discussed for a long, long time. Such matters were generally left to each woman and those who attended to her well-being, with perhaps some consideration given to what the reaction of the father, biological or legal, may be. However, it is believed that various methods of abortion have been tried and applied for thousands of years around the world. There's physical exertion, medicinal or herbal solutions, and of course, vaginal penetration with an instrument. Some women who do not wish to carry a pregnancy to term will seek a way to terminate the pregnancy, even while risking their own life. Changing the law will not change determination for many women who wish to go this route. Before we get into that, we must review a few facts. Sorry if we're covering Biology 101 here, but some people may not be fully aware of all of this, and it is all very relevant to the point. First of all, for the time being, it takes at least two to initiate a pregnancy, an egg donor and a sperm donor. In some cases, there may also be a surrogate to carry the embryo. But in most cases, when it comes to pregnancy, there was an act committed by one man upon one woman, with or without consent, that led to a fertilized egg. Although it would seem logical to address the role and responsibility of the male as well as the female in the creation of a pregnancy, the male is often left out of the discussion for multiple reasons. Whether it's fair or not, the law is almost always applied to the woman and the decisions she makes about her pregnancy. The male generally is left off the hook. Sometimes a woman's body will naturally terminate a pregnancy. We typically refer to that as a miscarriage. Many women who do want to have a baby and are willing to give birth will instead go through this unfortunate event. Because of this fact, it is not a foregone conclusion that every pregnancy will or must result in a live birth. The laws being initiated across the states and reviewed at the federal level appear to presume differently. Under most of these laws, each pregnancy is treated as viable from the point of conception. This simply is not true. 
In addition to this reality, infant mortality is high throughout parts of the world where access to adequate medical care is poor. This is not only true in so-called third world nations, this is also true in regions of America where medical facilities and medical practitioners are distant. Therefore, even in the event of a live birth, survival of the newborn infant is not guaranteed. Aside from this, every woman who becomes pregnant faces additional health complications during and immediately following their pregnancy. If you're from a Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition, you can chalk this up to Eve eating a piece of fruit when she wasn't supposed to. Otherwise, you can acknowledge that passing a child from the vagina is a tricky situation among primates who have learned to walk upright. Again, the point we're trying to make here is that becoming pregnant does not guarantee birth or the survival of the mother. So, what is the reason for individuals to become upset when a pregnancy is intentionally ended by the mother? Well, the determining factor here is the word intentional. Those who say they are opposed to abortion are generally willing to accept the termination if it is a natural occurrence. It's God's will, they may say. But a similar termination brought about by actions taken by the mother are seen as an annulment of God's will. In America, that can be traced back to a development within the Christian faith of the assertion that life begins at conception and that it is the will of God that babies be brought forth into this world. Let's break that down. It is a scientific fact that upon fertilization, the egg and sperm merge to begin a new life form. This new life form develops its own distinct DNA signature and therefore Contrary to a very popular political slogan, the embryo is not the mother's body. It is a separate entity. And it is not just any DNA signature. It is the DNA of a human being from the very beginning. Shortly after this, the fertilized egg implants somewhere within the mother's systems and starts growing, pulling nutrients from the mother. Again, we apologize if we're going over biology 101, but these points are important. If the egg implants in the wrong place, this is an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy almost never produces a living child, and it will be a major threat to the mother's life if not treated. Luckily, in most cases, that egg will implant within the uterus and will establish a symbiotic relationship with the mother's body. In the vast majority of cases, uterine implantation will cause the mother's body to change its production of certain hormones as her body becomes ready to deal with the growth of the fetus. That's probably where the my body, my choice argument steps in. Although this change in hormones will often become noticeable to the mother early on, it should be made clear that many women do not experience noticeable changes and do not know they are pregnant until well into the pregnancy. In the event that the pregnancy is allowed to continue, the fetus grows as the various systems develop to allow for life outside of the womb. The standard pregnancy, as we all know, lasts around nine months from fertilization, give or take a few weeks. If the child exits the womb before that time, it would face increased risks as it is not yet fully developed. Therefore, it could be said that the design of the fetus is such that it needs to reach this point before it can be counted on as a person, which may be defined as a human being who exists as an individual. Now let's go back to the God's will part. 
The Christian assertion is that God assigns a soul to a human while still in utero. The evidence for this assertion relies chiefly on a few Bible passages. In one, God says, I knew you before you were formed in the womb. Technically, this should be read as God being aware of the soul before the initiation of the pregnancy, because that's essentially what he is quoted as saying there. But some read it as knowing the soul as it is joined with the embryo in utero. The second biblical reference is in the New Testament, wherein a pregnant woman feels her unborn baby stir at the approach of Mary at the time that she is carrying the unborn Christ. This relies heavily on the assumption that an unborn baby could feel the presence of the Savior of all mankind and respond accordingly and kind of dismisses the common experience of fetuses moving about frequently in the last couple of months of the pregnancy. If we were to only go by that biblical quote, then it could be argued, perhaps, that a person is complete at the moment of conception, long before it's viable, and that God wants children to be born with the spirit with which he has imbued them as an embryo. However, this is to ignore a number of older biblical texts, which rather explicitly endorses infanticide, including the slaying of every firstborn son in Egypt. It's difficult to say that God wants to protect little children when there are so many instances in the Bible where it can be demonstrated that this is not so. Now, we should pause here to make another point. The vast majority of people who oppose abortion stridently believe in the notion that they are protecting the unborn from a horrible, painful death. On the other side of the fence are those who support the right to choose to have an abortion in deference to the health and well-being of the mother who would otherwise be held responsible by society for that child, even if the mother does not have the capacity to provide for that child or she did not want to become pregnant in the first place. Whether you want to admit it or not, the people on either side truly want to protect someone. We see and hear all sorts of claims about the evil, selfish, controlling reasons the members of the other side have for taking the position which they hold. But there is a fundamental separation along the lines of who is being protected, the mother or the child. That is what everyone is fighting for, protecting someone. This is what the Supreme Court is being asked to decide. Who is protected by the law? Although the precedent in U.S. law grants the protection to the mother, that appears to be on the cusp of being overturned. We must ask the question, why? Well, for one thing, a lot of legal scholars will say that Roe v. Wade was improperly argued in the first case, and that appears to be what the writer of this decision is arguing. But the court is not looking to simply get clarity on that precedent, as they will have done with other shaky precedents. They are looking to remove the precedent. The foundation of the law, then, will be to favor the rights of the unborn, even though, as mentioned previously, the mere viability of the unknown, unborn I'm sorry, is uncertain right up to the final trimester. Furthermore, this kind of ruling would necessarily be rooted in the Christian idea that an unborn child is a person with protected rights. If we were individually to take the Christian position of protecting the unborn, 
Should this be applied universally within the U.S.? The Bill of Rights explicitly restricts Congress from making a law regarding the establishment of a religion. If we were to apply the Christian theology to every woman in the nation, whether they are Christian or not, then we would be erasing that right of protection from an establishment of a religion. Do we really want the government to start telling people which religious doctrine they must follow upon penalty of law? That doesn't line up at all with the secular structure of our government, and it is a secular structure. Although it may come across as a flip response, the reply holds true. If you don't like abortions, don't have one. But to dictate moral responsibility rooted in a specific theology is not what the American government is supposed to be doing. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that the slapdash manner of creating this podcast on an emerging story did not result in too many errors or omissions. Again, these are just to stimulate thought and advance the discussion. You have been listening to The American Farewell with Gary Wells. Until next time, keep dreaming, America.